0: As mm-hmm. you kind of touched on in the beginning, I do write extensively, and it's not about the—it's not about kind of the idea of writing perfect essays for every day, but rather just sharing my thoughts on my blog. And people often read it, they respond, they think, oh, I thought this too," or "This uh, this kind of uh, this complements well with my thought." And it's really, um, as uh, the uh, the writer David Prell articulates, it's a way of producing serendipity for you.
1: Welcome to Worth, a podcast where my brother Asher and I highlight the unique stories of young people in the tech world. We'll talk with them about their backgrounds, current work, books that have profoundly affected their lives, and a lot more to understand how they think and the impact they want to make. This is the podcast that we wanted to listen to, but it didn't exist, so we made it ourselves. Think humans of New York, but for young people shaping the tech ecosystem. To check out episode transcripts and join our mailing list, please visit worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. link in the show notes. Let's begin. In this episode, I speak with James Gallagher, income share agreement expert, EIR at OnDeck, and a member of Pioneer's first ever cohort. We dive deep into ISAs, James's experience as a publicly traded person, and why he believes in Jerry Seinfeld's don't-break-the-chain mentality when it comes to writing and publishing content. Hope you enjoy James, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Ethan. Yeah, it's great to be here.
1: Really excited to have you on. I can't really think of anybody else we'd like to have as our inaugural guest. I think a good place to start would be with income share agreements. It's not at all an exaggeration to say that you're an expert in the space. At a very basic level, what is an ISA? How does it work? And why should our listeners care?
0: Yeah, just kind of the basic primary I like to give people is an ISA or an income share agreement is a method by which one can pay for them a service. And typically ISAs have been used in education. And the kind of basic idea is that when somebody uses an ISA to finance their education, they don't pay a penny up front. They don't take out a loan. They don't have to worry about balances or interest. Then instead, they pay as a percentage of their income, but they only pay that after they graduate and after they succeed, and to not only that, a step further after they earn over a certain amount. So some people draw the comparison uh, from ISAs to insurance. And the reason for that is when you take out an ISA, you will only pay when you succeed, which means if you go to a bootcamp, for example, which offers a subpar experience and you don't derive any value from your education, and um, you will not be obligated to pay or at least your payments will be lower and mm. um, so you can you can feel more confident in pursuing an educational offering knowing that if the quality of the service isn't high then you're not on the hook for that the school themselves are and so for kind of a brief history the idea was first then um, theorized in 1955 by the economist Milton Friedman and then um, mm. he um he pointed out rightfully so that loans were, were an inadequate way of financing education. And the reason for that is um, with a mortgage, your loan is securitized by your house. If you can't pay, okay, you, your house is just seized by the bank. With an education, that can't happen, which is why we see student loans have very high interest rates in kind of the private market and why we see kind of longer payment terms there because uh, these lenders need to make back their money. And the economics uh, there, if you don't succeed, then they can't seize a house. um, Mm -hmm. The dynamics are very different there. So an ISA offers a more equitable approach where you only pay if you succeed and your payments are um, made in relation to your income, which means that if you're earning less, you pay less. If you're earning more, you pay more. Um, And kind of after the initial idea was theorized in the 1950s, there were a couple of experiments, but uh, the idea of an ISA only really gained traction in the early 2010s. And first with App Academy in 2011, they are a software engineering coding bootcamp, and then really where things have gained steam is in the last five or so years with the launch of Purdue University's program in 2016 which just announced there's 1,000 uh, student participating in the program and we've seen that, that there are over 40 boot camps, over 10 colleges and a couple dozen other companies in this space too. So things are definitely growing and we are seeing that it's even going past education.
1: Yeah, so we have something that's not actually a novel concept. It's been around for a bit of time, but it's kind of gained in traction in in recent years. So I believe this past October you launched ISA List in the show notes. I'll link the listeners to this website. What would somebody find here?
0: Yeah, I developed that application briefly as a real-time list of the uh, main players in the space. Um, earlier this year, I published a report which um, outlines all of the major companies in the space, and it was split up into kind of categories. So talking about the emerging players, the people coming up, the market leaders, and things like uh, schools of the best I say programs and so on. And really, the, this report was designed to provide people with a complete snapshot of the market. And in addition to kind of covering the market now, I also made a few predictions and more in-depth comments about the state of the market. Um, And I thought, this this report, after I published it, I realised that within a month, three new universities have launched programmes as well, and so it just seemed only reasonable to create a a, a list I could update at any time with the companies operating in this space. So um, right now there's, um, I believe, 42 boot camps listed there, maybe around 10 to 15 colleges and a couple dozen other financing companies, servicers. Um, and it's designed to provide a complete snapshot into the space. So if you're new, if you're thinking about what schools offer, like an ISA, for example, you can go to the site, you can compare terms, you can get um, kind of the basic information, and then get linked to those companies' websites directly, so you can learn more about their services.
1: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So listeners will be able to take a look at both Momentum that's being made in the public sector and also the private sector. When you, when you think about the future of income share agreements, do you think one or the other will kind of drive, drive headway in the space or will it be some type of combination of both?
0: Yeah. Um. So I feel as if kind of activity um is concentrated into. I like to articulate it as two buckets. The first bucket is traditional education, so that's your colleges, universities, and other traditional institutions. So um, in that bucket we have Purdue University, as I mentioned, we have the University of Utah, Lackawanna College, um, at Bruneau University, and a couple of other institutions too. Um, and really we're seeing ISAs are beneficial in this case as an alternative to traditional students loans. Although federal loans are available um, to people who are attending these universities, what we see is that ISA still have a lot to offer students. Firstly, for students who have exhausted their federal options, um, they can can take out an ISA as an alternative there. So they can still attend their uh, education, they can complete their education. Um, like For example, the University of Utah's program is specifically for people in their final year, because many students were getting to their final year in school and they just dropped out because they couldn't have forward to continue. This, I say in, in uh, the University of Utah's case, gives people an adequate alternative to kind of relying on private market loans, which can uh, have higher interest rates, or just kind of dropping out altogether. So that's the first bucket. And the second bucket is your coding bootcamp. And coding boot camps are short-term training programs designed to help people acquire the skills they need to break into a specific career in technology. So there we have institutions like Lambda School, um, like Make School, Holberton School, Kenzie Academy in Indianapolis, and uh, many other institutions there. And the main benefit of ISAs in this context is that people who attend boot camp are Title IV eligible, which means they can't rely on the federal government and to finance their education. And so in this context, somebody can say okay, okay, I'm interested in a boot camp. I can go to like a lambda school, for example, and only pay when I succeed. I will only pay for my boot camp education after I graduate and after I'm earning over $50,000. And it gives people a viable alternative to either A, saving money up front, which can be difficult for a program that can cost tens of thousands of dollars, or B, taking out a private loan, which again has those higher interest rates. And there's also the benefit in boot camps around kind of this alignment of interests. And boot camps are a newer model most bootcamp activities being confined in the 2010s and we're still seeing some institutions are kind of finding their feet but um, but an ISAC allows a bootcamp to say to their students okay you will only pay if you succeed so we will do whatever we can to help you succeed otherwise we will notice an impact on our financials and we find that that's a powerful branding message and I think um, in the future we will see more boot camps offer MISAs, and indeed it has become the industry standard now and I think that is kind of uh, Lambda School for example pioneered as a differentiator uh, as a kind of competitive advantage but now it is becoming the norm. More institutions are launching programs, more capitals become available um, and I think we will start to see eyes really take off in in vocational skills academies and boot camps. That's not to say that colleges won't offer more programs, there's a lot of potential there for helping alleviate the burden of loans on people and kind of um, helping, I wouldn't say solve because one can't really solve the student debt crisis Uh, its current size but um, kind of help mitigate it I guess. Um, And so I think we will start to see more colleges there but the rate at which more colleges create programs I think will be slower. There are institutional barriers to consider. These universities are kind of more traditional and also IECs introduce a level of accountability which I think some uh, colleges may struggle with at least in their current states.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think even aside from the short-term financial benefit, like you mentioned, because incentives are aligned, in theory, that should lead to broader, more successful long-term outcomes. So I think just to broaden the scope of our discussion a little bit, you've actually written a book about equity investing in people. It's called Life Capital. Again, uh, we'll link to this in the show show notes. And you're actually a publicly traded person, which is probably the most perfect example of having skin in the game that I've ever come across. What what has this experience been like?
0: So yes, um, around one year ago, I started developing the James G Trading Platform, and it was really developed on this fundamental idea of what would it look like if capitalism was applied to one's individual decisions. So I consider the project to be kind of a crowdsourced decision-making model. I post a question up for vote, and I allow people who have kind of invested, quote unquote, in the project to vote on decisions based on the number of shares they've purchased. And So we have a couple dozen shareholders, Some people have more shares than others in fact there's one shareholder who has so many they can sway the votes of any questions to the point where it will just go their way irrespective of how other people vote but what we've seen is this project was an experiment in seeing how I could bring people closer to my decision-making process and um, mm-hmm. I am of course younger and I have um, a lot of bigger decisions ahead of me and the idea was to help get people more involved with that process and this project um, really encouraged me to lay out the decisions I was thinking about in more depth. I, I would write up a description that was typically about say 500 words maybe a bit less about a question I was considering and I would put it to the shareholders and um, fast forward they voted on things like how I should schedule meetings which was also the protocol I used to schedule this interview um, and yeah. they, vote, they, they voted on um, things like uh, my media consumption and um, whether or not I should t- uh, take a break from technology and a few other things too and um, the project has been successful however Right now, shareholders in the spirit of the project are actually voting on whether or not it should be extended. Um, And over the last few months, it has fallen through the cracks. So I've asked shareholders the question of what does the future of this platform look like? So, uh, in the spirit of the model we're seeing, we're asking shareholders, what do you think should come out of this project? Do you think it's sustainable? And thus far, the sentiment has been relatively positive. So it looks like we we could have another project renewal on our hands.
1: Yeah. And I think regardless of the future of the project, you've been able to build a really interesting community around yourself.
0: Yes, uh, indeed. I would say there that uh, this has been an experiment not only in capitalism, but also in developing what I like to refer to as my personal community. This this allowed me to develop closer bonds with people. Every yep. week, people would turn up to read a question. They'd want to learn more about my life because it would allow them to help me make more informed decisions. And what we saw, that it, it wasn't really about the stock price and the capital markets aspect of the project, but rather just the ability to participate in my decision making and uh, kind of the ability ability. to enjoy my journey. And so there were many people who were showing up every weekend. What I found is that in some of my conversations with friends who were also participants in the projects, we just randomly touch bases on uh, a shareholder question. And that really did encourage a more frequent cadence of communication with some people, but also really helped me navigate my decisions. I feel as if there was definitely a strong personal community aspect there.
1: Yeah, and I think even more generally, at a very young age, you've been able to connect very effectively with other people that are not only interested in what you're working on, but want to take maybe not just a social interest, but also a financial interest in that work. So you're you're an EIR at OnDeck. You're a researcher at Career Karma. You obviously post daily on your website and maintain a website on ISAs, but you're also a part of, I believe, Pioneer's first ever cohort. Can you talk a little more about what that is and how you became involved?
0: Sure. Last August, I read a tweet from Patrick Collison about this thing called Pioneer, and it was kind of talking about uh, how they were searching for the ambitious outsiders of the world. And it was it was just the kind of thing which I thought, "Huh, this is interesting." And after taking some time to look over uh, the materials, it was um, essentially the um, Pioneer was positioning themselves as a talent search engine. They were looking for the quote-unquote ambitious outsiders of the world, um, mm-hmm. and they were looking to kind of fill them out for a tournament process and help support the, the most ambitious innovators, the people working on interesting ideas, even if they weren't businesses, just working on the most interesting ideas, which could have an impact on society or an impact on a particular industry. you managed to aggregate some of the best young minds into one place. We saw there were journalists, there were business people, there were scientists, all in this one place. Um, and the kind of ethos behind the project is that when you sign up, what happens is you're put for a leaderboard process through that leaderboard you can earn points for doing various things so there were opportunities to um, earn points through filling out a personality test or doing a certain quiz and then each week you would be able to post an update and that update would be peer-reviewed by a couple dozen other members of the cohort and the more upvotes you got on your application the more you would advance to the tournament and my application was continuously upvoted and um, which kind of allowed me to uh, advance in the leaderboard in uh, kind of September. I was notified of the fact that an expert had flagged my application and mm-hmm. I was to become a pioneer and to be conferred that status and then um, kind of, yeah, uh, the project has thus far, and um, from my perspective, achieved its goal of aggregating all of these ambitious young people into one place. We're all very ambitious, we're all looking to kind of the future and we all have similar ways of looking at the world, I guess, in the sense that we're all willing to challenge the status quo, even on the smallest things. Um, and it has been an interesting experience. Experience being part of the community—it's been—it's been amazing actually to be able to um, meet such great people. And indeed, I am still in still in touch with a lot of the people from my Pioneer experience. But um, yeah, it, it, it was very interesting. And I'm only becoming more bullish on these kind of these platforms which allow people to aggregate human talent and discover the best people. And I think Pioneer, through their leaderboard method, rather than kind of um, individual selection, that was something that that really resonated. They were focused on merit and ambition over over grades in school and over traditional methods of uh, measuring one's potential. And yeah, it it was an interesting experience. And to this day, I still enjoy being able to call myself a pioneer.
1: That's great. Um, To your point that you've made in the past that opportunity is everywhere, but access is not, how would you recommend that other young people begin to form communities around themselves, kind of like you've been able to do?
0: yeah um firstly what i would say is i uh, use that point frequently and i have many ways of articulating it but i by no means call it my own because so many Fair. people use this and uh, in fact it's it's kind of become it's kind of become one of these uh, memes on vc twitter about kind of how uh, talent is distributed opportunity is not and so on but to me it is a real issue and uh, i think um, there are so many great people out there there are so many ambitious young people who are kind of the person in class who doesn't who doesn't really get all these the attention that they deserve Mm -hmm. from their classmates because they like to do things in their spare time other people just don't understand they have intellectual pursuits or interests which fall outside the traditional kind of window of thinking that young people have and I experienced that I mean um in high school, I had a very different definition of success. I was kind of focused on just pursuing my own curiosities, going into things in as much depth as possible. And I kind of cultivated my own personal curriculum. And I was spending all my time reading about ideas like programming and business. And I spent years just pursuing some of these ideas in significant depth. And it wasn't I wanted to build a career out of it. It was just out of innate interest. And I find that those things have certainly paid off. But I was just interested in pursuing pursuing curiosities and uh, pursuing any little idea I found interesting. Um, And I think that's really the first piece of advice I have for young people is that if you have a curiosity, explore it. It doesn't have to become a career path immediately. Just go in depth into as much different things as possible. And I'm an advocate for this idea of having a shopping period. And the idea behind a shopping period is that you just spend a few years or a few months or whatever exploring as many different paths as you possibly can and going into depth. And the reason that this is important is what we find is that many people who really get ahead um, in the longer term are those who have found the thing which they which they uh, really find interesting. And I don't think that one can do that by just enrolling in university and hoping for the best. I don't think that you can find your the kind of thing that you're most interested in by just taking high school classes. You need to go out and find it yourself. And I know I know people kind of think that YouTubing and such isn't a ve- valid career path. But if you are are legitimately interested in that if you've uh, kind of researched six or seven different careers and you've said none of these are for me then absolutely you bring, could be a viable career path for you but it's not about the career it's about pursuing the passion and what I find is that people just need to focus on the fundamentals focus on the knowledge and then later on figure out okay how do I turn this into a career path and what we see is that just like with my writing and with my book and so on there was no linear career path that I was considering things have yeah. changed so much over the last few years, and so much which I haven't even documented in public yet. Um, And this has all been the product of the shopping period, spending time exploring all of these fields in as much depth as possible. and I guess, um, to your point, my second piece of advice is for people to really develop their online presence as early as possible. Um, mm-hmm. I've had a Twitter account now for quite some time, and I'm a firm believer in using that platform to connect with other people. In fact, I even find my current job through the platform. Um, uh, Twitter, as I've articulated it, is kind of an API for experts. You can literally reach some of the smartest minds who are alive today just through DMing them on Twitter or just through replying on a thread. And so my great opportunities can materialize through there. And even if you don't have a lot of followers, you can still connect with all of these people, you can reply, you can add your two cents to opinions, and naturally you will just start to see that your personal community will grow. To that point, I think um, another important part of kind of building your online presence is having a good personal website, um, Mm -hmm. as you kind of touched on in the beginning. I do write extensively. And it's it's not about kind of the idea of writing perfect essays for every day, but rather just sharing my thoughts on my blog, and people often read it, they respond, they think, oh, I thought this too, or this uh, this kind of, uh, this complements well with my thought, and it's really, um, as uh, the, uh, the writer David Prell articulates it, is a way of producing serendipity for yourself. When you post content out there on the internet, anybody from anywhere can read it at any time, they can share it with anyone, and the, the real benefits of publishing an essay cannot be quantified, it will continue to compound over time, more people will read what you've written and so many great things can happen there and that would really be my second piece of advice to your question there um, and building your online presence as much as possible and um, my third and final point is for younger people to realize that unconventional paths now is the best time to pursue an unconventional path um, it's not for everyone if you prefer stability or if you are interested in going to university that's fine you can just do your own thing I'm a big advocate of kind of letting people uh, pursue whatever interest they have in their careers and just them um, letting them discover things as they go. But um nowadays it's so easy to pursue an unconventional path. Platforms like Patreon and YouTube and um, and uh, TikTok and so on have made it so easy for people to monetize any form of content creation. It's it's just wonderful. If you want to write a blog, that's that's wonderful. In a year, that blog could be a source of income for you. That could even become a full-time job if you really invest the amount of time it deserves. And um, so I think the kind of people that sit classes uh, and utter under their breaths that is my unconventional path really the right thing to be doing I felt that too and in fact I I thought about it like going to university to study law at one point and it was something which never materialized because I continued to stick to my fundamental belief that the unconventional paths were viable and I think to this day I've continued to stick to that path and it has only the only but paid off.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think it's never been easier for anybody out there to start their own blog, their own website, their own podcast, and it can be an incredible point of leverage. Um, Just to backtrack a little bit, can you talk a little bit more about what your specific writing process looks like and how you're able to produce high quality content very consistently?
0: Yeah, so I consider myself to be a writer and researcher, and uh, I like to spend as as much of my time really as possible in writing. And my writing process has changed a lot, and I, I can get into that in a minute. But right now, my my kind of main process is I have a fundamental belief that every day I should be writing, and that doesn't mean that I have to be writing a great essay every day or writing something that's worth publishing, but rather just writing something I'm proud of and writing something that I'm willing to say I wrote this and I think confers some value to other people and um, so right now what happens is um. For my work, I typically write a few thousand words each day, but uh, my work is kind of longer form, it takes longer to write and edit. So, um, what we see is that generally I publish um, a couple of commentary pieces for work um, a month at Career Karma, covering uh, a variety of different topics. And I also have a couple of other longer form research papers and so on, which take even longer to write. But each day, I write about 500 words on my blog. It used to be a thousand, um, but I decided to reduce it for the reason that when you want to start writing, the, the most important important thing which you need to remember is you need to make it as easy as possible for you to show up every day and in my case and um, I found that writing 500 words was attainable because I was I was already writing that anyway and being able to say to myself okay every day I'm going to write 500 words or so I'm going to write a blog post each day so, and that helped me really build the momentum so I'm um, First piece of advice I have for anybody starting who are thinking about writing more actively is to just know that you can do it and just to get started. There's no no barriers. You don't have to be a professional writer. You don't even have to want to be a writer to actually derive benefits from writing. Writing every day can help improve your communication skills. It can introduce a new level of clarity of thinking for you. It can, as we kind of discussed there before, engineer new serendipitous interactions and opportunities for you. And so writing every day, even if you're not publishing every day, just writing every day is something which can provide so much value and something that I hold dear to this day. Um, The second thing which I've learned over time is to focus, at least at the start, on quantity over quality. And the reason for that is when you're writing and you're on day one, you're saying, okay, I want to build a writing habit. It's very tempting to sit in front of a blank page and then an hour later, you have something which you say, okay, this is trash. And then you, you put it away and you never publish it and you never end up getting into that routine. But if you do publish, what's the worst that can happen? A few people say to you, this isn't that great, here's some feedback. What's the best thing that can happen? Your essay can go viral. It's essentially an asymmetric risk there. Uh, you can lose all the time that you invested in writing that essay, which may only be 10, 20, 30 minutes, but you can gain so much. You can gain feedback, you can gain support. Um, so really, when you're starting, you should engineer an environment which makes it easy for you to show up every day. In my case, I write at the same time every day. I typically start writing as early in the morning as possible. I write a blog post typically around lunchtime and just before I consume lunch um, and it doesn't really take that long to drive out 500 words and the the idea is not to focus on quality as my main factor but rather just ensuring that I do hit publish every day and as I continue to hit publish Jerry Seinfeld has a kind of phrase which he uses as every day you should aim not to break the chain. You should try and make Mm -hmm. sure that every day you can say that you accomplished a certain goal and if you can do that as each day passes it becomes easier and easier to keep doing things I mean I've been writing almost every day this year and I have no intention of stopping writing tomorrow and uh, because I've been writing so much it's just like the, the kind of behavioral psychology behind streaks on social networks like Snapchat and Product Hunt and um, those streaks are engineered to make sure that you show up each day because you want your number to go up and the same goes with writing if you can make it easy for you to get started then you can see that over time that you will continue to publish quality content. And um, really what I've noticed is that in writing uh, dozens, in fact over 100 essays this year, what I've seen is that naturally the quality of your writing improves over time. So if you can just show up and if you can get a week of writing under your belt, you'll start to see that over time you will get more feedback and the quality of your writing does appreciate.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I think Yeah, there there are a lot of really valuable points in there, and I'm actually writing down notes for myself uh, at the moment. And I think if listeners are interested in building positive habits or getting rid of negative ones, completely aside from writing, I would definitely recommend Atomic Habits by James Clear. I think that he outlines in greater detail a lot of the points that you've just made and kind of leveraged in building out your your writing practice. Um, But yeah, I think... Just a last question to finish up here. What is a book or some books that have made a very large positive impact on your life, James?
0: Well, you actually named one of my highest recommended books there, uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. It is one of the best uh, best books I've ever read. Uh, it goes in depth into the psychology of habits, but it also articulates things in a way which anybody can understand. It doesn't go too scientific like a lot of habit science does. It just keeps things short. It keeps things simple, and more importantly, it keeps things actionable. And um, in the book, there's a couple of different pages which um, really outline the Kind of main takeaways from each chapter in a way that is easy for you to read so if you read this one page then that'll give you all of the basic things you need to know to actually act on what you've uh, what you've learned in the book so far and i think um there's even kind of pdf checklists as well which come with the book if you go onto james clear's website and there's just some great resources that accompany uh, the book which helps you really implement what you've learned um, so Atomic Habits is certainly one of my highest recommended books. Um, and another one, and uh, another two really, which I've been enjoying lately is firstly, I know this is a common recommendation, but How to Win Friends and Influence People is again one of the best books I've ever read. It goes in depth into how to uh, cultivate closer relationships, how to meet people, how to interact with people effectively, and how to ensure that in your communications you are representing yourself well and you're making the other person feel valued and conversation conversation, And some of the tips around how to approach uh, difficult situations where an argument could be ensuing, some of those tips are just invaluable. And um, so uh, Dale Carnegie, in that book, and another excellent one, and. Um, Finally, another book which has been interesting is Range. It's How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And this book goes really in depth into the debate I've been considering a lot lately of which is better, specialization or generalization. And it uses some amazing examples of Tiger Woods and uh, tennis players and, and people who are enrolled in the US Naval Academy at West Point and so many other great examples which try and advocate for the case of both generalists and specialists. And I think it really, it really does paint things in a great light and it, this book's been special important to me because of, as I discussed earlier, this idea of having a shopping period and um, in this book it lays out the case very well of the importance of spending time to find what it is that you're passionate about. So overall there are Atomic Habits, How to Win and Influence People and Range, How Generalists Triumph in the Specialist World.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We'll link to all three of those in the show notes. Before we go, James, where is the best place for our listeners to find you?
0: Yeah, um, the best place to find me is uh, twitter.com forward slash um, at jamesg underscore OCA. Or you can find me on my blog at jamesgallagher.app.
1: James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: It's been wonderful being on this podcast. Thanks, Ethan.
1: This has been Ethan Lee Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. W-O-R-T-H dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends or leave a review. Thanks again for listening.